Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Kicking the Kariaki. We're an intersectional feminist podcast series. And our aim is to create a platform for marginalised voices and to challenge the fucking norm. We're really sorry for the delay in making this episode. We create and produce this all in our spare time alongside full-time jobs. And recently it has been a bit of a challenge. But we've come up with a plan for monthly episodes for 2017 and we're back in gear. So watch this space because you will not be disappointed. So on to the episodes. Last time we talked about the curriculum and loads of you got in touch to say how much you loved it. And we also got called in. We haven't been great at calling out ableist language. So, for example, if someone says that something is crazy or insane. This language is used all the time, but it's harmful to hear for those who live with mental health issues, for example. So thank you for calling us in. We promise that we'll do better to brief our guests in future and call it out when we hear it. Something else before we begin. We got name dropped in an article about diversity in podcasts. We were pretty chuffed and we'll be the first to say that representation is important. They talked about the number of podcast hosts who are people of colour, women or LGBTQ. Now we haven't ever explicitly said it before, but... We're we're queer! Long live representation! So now you know, on to the podcast topic. This episode is all about consent. We're going to give you a content warning right now. As in this episode, our guests will be talking about rape culture, victim blaming, slut shaming, gendered violence, sexual violence and assault and child sexual exploitation. So feel free to stop listening or to take a break whenever you like. This is a topic that we're particularly passionate about for many reasons, not to mention the fact that there's been a lack of conversations around consent that's affected us personally. It feels really topical too, as allegations and evidence of sexual assault hasn't stopped the career aspirations of either Ched Evans or Trump. What a fucking world we live in. There's plenty of work to be done, and it starts with us all. Over to our first guest. Hello, my name's Nadia, and I'm a recent grandmother. Amazing! Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So we brought you in today to do this episode on consent and I'm very excited to have you in here as you guest lectured one of my modules at Royal Holloway which was the criminal and forensic psychology module. Yes, that's right. So what is your research speciality? I've specialised in gendered violence generally but sexual violence specifically. Particularly interested in the way in which the criminal justice system responds to victims and in the notion of sexual re-victimisation, which is where children who have been sexually abused go on to be sexually assaulted again in later life. 
by different perpetrators. And unfortunately, there's a really, really high risk that once you've been sexually abused in childhood of being targeted again later on. And so those interests overlap in so much as they're one of the groups of people that really get missed in the criminal justice system. Their cases tend to not progress. What motivated you to specialise in this area? What first driving force came from the fact that when I was 16, I witnessed a rape. I was saying goodnight to a boyfriend on the doorstep. We suddenly heard all this screaming coming from at the end of the road. So we both ran down there and we found a young man who I knew and this poor young lady who was in all the mud and leaves and debris stuck in her pencil skirt. And the thing that struck me was we'd both got the same skirt on and I just kept thinking, I'm never going to wear this skirt again because he literally trapped her with her arms stuck over her head so she couldn't fight back so I insisted on taking her home made my mum phone the police then a year later was called as a witness to court and my evidence was based on the fact it was against her wishes she was screaming and her arms were stuck trapped in her skirt and they said to me no I'd got that wrong she was wearing it was with boiler suits in that era which completely contradicted what I was saying and I kept saying no 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 because I remember I had the same skirt on and I was dismissed as lying and I found that really hard, the fact that I knew what had happened and it was so memorable because of the fact I'd had this silly thought about my own safety rather than worrying about her, which I felt quite guilty about. Anyway, he got away with it. And so just because I'd been 17 by then, being really shocked by the fact that something had happened, there had been independent witnesses. I didn't know this young lady, but even with witnesses he could still get away with it. So that was my first introduction. And then really later on in the 90s, I worked in mental health, bringing people out of long-term hospital care. And nearly all of the clients I had had a history of child sexual abuse. Nothing had happened to their perpetrators, but they'd all been seen as mad because of what they were disclosing. And so again, I felt this was an injustice. And so that really prompted me to, all the way through my degree, I focused on gendered violence, and particularly sexual violence. So quite a personal motivation, really, there, and quite a personal experience. Yeah. I think that I still think I feel quite guilty for that young lady, and I'd love to meet her, even though we're now... I think something like 33 years down the line to be able to say to her I'm so sorry for putting you through that. You feel guilty for putting her through the criminal justice system? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, okay. And is that because the criminal justice system didn't do any justice whatsoever? No. It completely tore her apart. I mean, if they did that to me just as a witness on the stand, I now knowing what goes on, I can now further imagine how they treated her. So, historically, what has been the attitude towards victims of sexual assault? Typically, there's two responses usually when somebody sort of discloses the fact they've been sexually assaulted. One is disbelief, the fact that you've got to be lying, that you just made that up. Um, There's this notion that women are quite vindictive and that we do that. We have regrettable sex and then we shout rape. I remember saying to a group of police officers once, if I was ever to have regrettable sex, I would keep very quiet about it and not tell the world, you know. And the other response is, if it's in your face, the fact that the assault did happen then actually that person's to be blamed. In some way, they instigated their own victimisation, that they are responsible. So do you think we've moved on at all from this? No. No? Okay, it's a very simple answer, basically. (laughs) Yeah, if we look at the work that was done, the feminist movement really in the 70s really brought this to our attention. We've got people like Susan Brown-Miller, who wrote Against Our Will in mid-70s, Sue Lees' work, who wrote Carnal Knowledge, Rape on Trial. All of their studies were showing the prevalence of these rape myths within the general population and within policing and within the court system. 
an awful lot has been done to raise awareness since then. When I first started teaching about inequality, lots of people would say that to me, things like, Nadia, no, things have changed. It might be your generation, but it's not ours. And then when I look at what's going on, I actually think, do you know what, it hasn't changed that drastically. So there was, in 2005, Amnesty International did a study looking at the prevalence of rape myths, and that demonstrated exactly the same level of prevalence of belief, in fact, that women deserved to be raped because they were out at night on their own, they wore a short skirt, that they'd had sex with one more than one partner, they'd been drinking. And I, just, I used to say to the students, God, if this, is the, if this is how it's viewed, I deserve to be raped a million times over just for walking home from work late at night, chances are I might have a shorter than normal skirt on. I remember this recollection stood out for me so much in your course where so a woman was out in the fields walking her dogs and she was quite violently attacked and raped and it went to court, it was lucky enough to get to court and people were saying, oh, you know, she was clearly asking for it and then the lawyer or something dropped her muddy shoes, trainers on the table and was like, are these the shoes of a woman that was wanting to be raped? And it was like, God forbid she like wore her heels to work that day or like didn't change when she got home from work. The idea that because the lady in that, that was a real case, and she would have been a lady in her 40s, and the idea by the time you're in your 40s, you've had sex more than once. And if you've had sex more than once, you just want sex with anybody, really. It's as though you would come across a stranger in the field whilst walking your dog and think, oh, do you know what? I quite fancy this now with a pair of scissors at my throat, you know. So how likely is it that things end up in a conviction? It's a hard one. The latest figures suggest that about 15% of victims of sexual assault will report to the police. Of those, the figures suggest that in this country, around about 5 to 6% will end up in a conviction. And that's of those that are recorded by the police, not reported to the police. The police will still no further action, which used to be classed as no criming. It's a bit of a postcode lottery. Apparently the worst place to be raped is Gloucestershire, where you've got less than 1% chance of getting a conviction. And the best place, I think, is either Suffolk or Yorkshire. It's up to a 14% chance. Is there any like correlation there in terms of, like, is it something to do with class? or? There's a lot of factors that will predict. You're far less likely to get a conviction where the assailant was an intimate partner or an acquaintance. So stranger rape, you're much more likely, even though in stranger rapes we're far less likely to know who the perpetrator was. That's partly because in a stranger rape, you're much more likely to report to the police immediately because it's an unambiguous situation and possibly more scared and possibly more willing to go for the collection of the forensic evidence. Generally speaking, younger women under the age of 24 are less likely to get a conviction. Anybody that's got a known mental health or suspected mental health illness is less likely got a learning disability you're less likely which is like baffling because you would think that they're more vulnerable everything that makes somebody more vulnerable actually makes them less believable according to the police or to the court so the fact that you were there's a prior history of sexual victimization whether or not it had gone to court or not you happen to be drinking at the time or that you've got your own criminal record if you think about sort of people that are most disadvantaged and I always think about children that have been in care who tend to be heavily victimised but also end up in criminal activity because of what's happened to them they're very unlikely to get justice You mentioned briefly that the feminist movement in the 70s helped it Has the feminist movement ever at all hindered? The only thing that I'm worried about and I think this is inadvertent and I would class myself as a feminist but I think where we've had to really promote about the harm that's done from sexual violence, which it is, I think that's been used against women then who 
seeking justice because the idea being, well, if you've been raped, you've obviously got a mental health problem now. And so actually it's almost people become pathologised because of their victimisation. And in America, unfortunately, what they've done is they've used the diagnosis of rape trauma syndrome to determine whether or not a rape actually happened. So if you are unfortunate enough to be somebody that happened to be resilient because you had a lot of resources around you, unfortunately then it would be seen as though, well, actually, do you know what? It clearly didn't happen because you're not so traumatised. I've just done some work with an organisation called Circles who support sex offenders in the community. And I've done a study with Chris Wilson looking at survivors who choose to volunteer for that organisation. I interviewed people that were volunteering that didn't have a history of sexual violence. When I asked them about how they felt about survivors working, they'd sort of say, well, no, no, because they're very vulnerable. You know, they could be a risk for re-triggering them. So it was in a very caring sort of notion, but this idea that they were constantly victims. When they talked about the sex offenders, they were very much saying you can't judge the person by the crimes that they've committed. But the same didn't translate when thinking about victims. You couldn't be an ex-victim, you just constantly carried that label. You've touched on it a little bit already, but could you tell us about the typical experience of someone who's reported a rape? What's called attrition, you can fall out of the process at every step of the way. So we now have SARCs, or the Sexual Assault Referral Centres. The first one was set up in the 80s in St Mary's in Manchester. And they're often associated with a police station or a hospital, but they are actually semi-independent, but they do have facilities where you could give a statement to the police. So they're laid out quite well. So the idea being they've got comfortable rooms, they've got showers, and you can have your forensic medical examination. They'll have supporters on hand. So nowadays you'd have your independent sexual assault advisors to offer support and help guide you through the criminal justice process. Unfortunately, in some areas, because their resources are so scarce, if you choose not to go through the criminal justice process, they're not able to carry on supporting. So typically you could choose how to go about things and it varies depending on which county you're in. In some areas you can choose to have forensic medical evidence taken and have it frozen so you don't have to make a decision there and then whether or not to proceed with a criminal case. You could choose at that point if you wanted to give the police a statement. There's this what's known as a forensic window of 72 hours and so typically everybody's pushing you to get forensic evidence quite quickly because after 72 hours it's no good. Many victims don't report to the police immediately it's often after they've gone back and talked to somebody else and it's somebody else that normally then encourages them to go to the police so it's not normally the first thing that people think of unless it's a stranger rape unfortunately this is where the dropout is is because many victims the last thing they want to do is go through a forensic medical examination and I imagine the group that this hits most are those who have a history of child sexual abuse, who already have a fear of medical examinations and any other intimacy. And having just gone through a sexual assault, it's actually a very, very intimate exam. So many victims actually withdraw themselves from the, that point, even if they carry on but refuse to go through that. The fact that they refuse to go through the forensic medical examination is also now another risk factor for it not being accepted by the Crown Prosecution Service to progress to court. You'd have to have SDI tests, possibly an AIDS test, pregnancy testing. And obviously, like with the AIDS test, you'll need to be retested in three months. Pregnancy test, it would have to be tested again in several weeks while you're in a state of chaos. So your sex, uh, independent sexual assault advisor should stay with you and guide you through the process if you're going to go through the criminal justice process. Typically, it could take a year to 18 months, sometimes two years, before the case can go to court. In the meantime, the police will gather evidence 
in putting things together, they might get other reports if you've ever been to a counsellor, if you've said that you've experienced previous sexual abuse or you've experienced another rape. That will be allowed to be used by the defence against you. It could be your school record, so if you were disruptive at school. So although we brought in what's we termed the rape shield laws in about 1991, which means that you shouldn't be able to bring in a victim's sexual history evidence, unfortunately there's a loophole in the way that's played out. And every barrister, doesn't matter whether they work for the prosecution or the defence, if it's asked for, they'll allow it to be brought in. And the one thing we do know is it's a guaranteed acquittal once sexual history evidence has been brought in. Am I right in thinking this is what happens in the Ted Evans case? It is, yeah. And that's devastating because it was that it doesn't matter what you've done in a prior sexual relationship, an intimate relationship, it doesn't mean you'll automatically do that with anybody. So the build-up to the court case can be incredibly stressful, as you can imagine. Lots of people I'm speaking to are saying that they were never really prepared for the fact that they might end up with a not guilty verdict. They should have an opportunity through victim support or witness care to have a look around the courtroom. Unfortunately, there's been this notion that it's best not to have any sort of psychotherapeutic support until after the court case because any work that you have done to help you deal with the trauma, actually if it involves anything to do with your memory or talking about the incident, means that it could contaminate your evidence. And that's what happens, I think, in the Francis Andrade case, the young lady who was sexually assaulted by her music teacher. She then committed suicide following her cross-examination. Many people find that you think you've got this court date. That can change. It's a malleable object. And then, even if somebody's pleaded not guilty, they might choose on the day to decide to plead guilty, which means you don't go in and give evidence. Now, many people feel cheated in a way because they think that they were going to be able to tell their story because what they don't know is they would have never got to tell their story. The court case is not about you telling what happened. It's about the defence really having a chance to pick away at the case and just ask the questions they want. The prosecution barrister tends to only meet with the victim just as they're going into the courtroom. So many victims say they don't feel that they were represented very well at all. Following the court case, depending on what happens, you know, most services pull out because most services are there to make you go through the court case. You're doing it in the public interest. So it's there to sort of push you through and support you through that process. They're there to sort of pull out at that point. And particularly if you get a not guilty verdict, you're not a victim. But they recognise that and they want to carry on supporting. But the reality is the resources are so sort of finite. And even people that end up with um, a guilty verdict are not normally for the whole of the offence. It's normally sort of a plea bargain down or might only be for elements of it. The stress for them is really, really high even afterwards. And even the studies that have looked at women that have gone through court and got a guilty verdict, if they felt that the judge in any way disbelieved them or blamed them, they have far higher levels of PTSD nine months post the court case than what they did just after the actual assault. What we don't know is what happens to people who end up being expelled from the criminal justice system because either the police don't think there's enough evidence or the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, if they don't think there's a 50% chance of conviction, they won't allow it to progress to court. So am I right in thinking that this is, that whole awful harrowing process of being dragged through the whole experience again is that called secondary victimization that's when secondary victimization can happen yeah so it's the idea many people sort of say it's like a second rape or your intimate details are brought out in public you know you can have people in sitting in the public gallery it could be images of your underwear images of you naked showing the injuries that you've sustained say having your sexual history brought up in court and you could have your family there supporting you a lot of it is about trying to sort of discredit the victim 
So why does the criminal justice system or Crown Prosecution Service, what's the difference between them, by the way? Criminal justice system is the police, the Crown Prosecution Service, the courts. It's okay. the whole It's the whole group. Okay. So why, why does the criminal justice system and Crown Prosecution Service treat victims so badly? The key thing really for somebody like the Crown Prosecution Service, they're responsible for the finances. If you think this case isn't going to make it to a conviction, and the chances are it's not, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in the end. So the only cases that lead to a conviction are those where it conforms to notions of what Eastridge called real rape. You know, the idea it was a stranger, you were attacked in the dark was use of a weapon, you had defensive injuries. That's not how the majority of rape happens. The majority of rape is acquaintance rape? Most be acquaintance. An awful lot, we're getting more and more of an idea now, the level of intimate partner rape, where people previously didn't report on that. Acquaintance would cover right from intimate partner, ex-intimate partner, all the way down to somebody that you've just met within the past 24 hours. So if you were seen in a bar and somebody nudged you and you sort of said sorry to him but it was caught on t- CCTV camera that you've had some level of conversation, you'd suddenly become an acquaintance. And how does that affect the culpability of the victim, whether it's a stranger rape or an acquaintance rape? It's seen as there's no way that if you already knew the person, it can't be a real rape. You must have done something because there must have been some interaction between you that would have let you believe the person that you were up for sex. I remember sort of some years ago talking to a police officer who'd had a case of a lady who had caught a late bus, having escaped a domestic violence incident and had decided to go to her sister's, sat on this bench with a little bag, crying, and a guy came up to her and he'd got a can of special brew and he sort of said, oh, bless you, are you OK? Handed her a hanky, and this is all caught on CCTV. Handed her a can of special brew and said, oh, you ought to just have a little sip. So she did and she thought he was being caring. He'd said to her, according to the police, that he, he could tell her where to go and she followed him and he pushed her down an alleyway and raped her. And the police said, well, that we didn't think it was rape because she sat chatting to him, you know, she took a hanky from him and from his can so we presumed it was sex or so she just escaped domestic violence crying her eyes out it's not normally the type of thing you want is a bit of sex down a dirty alleyway at that point and he said oh no I never really thought about it like that but this assumption because there would be this interaction why aren't the perpetrators put under as much scrutiny as the victims you, you said it before it's because you have to discredit the victim that's why that's the role within the whole sort of the game playing within the court is about sort of discrediting the victim the idea being that our whole court system is built around you're innocent until proven guilty and because it's the person that's been accused they see has got most to lose you know they might lose their freedom their reputation goodness knows what's happened to women's reputations but nobody cares about that that actually everything has to be done to protect them so this whole idea about not allowing their previous history to come up it's been really problematic in the past nowadays there's a change and I can't remember what it's called but the idea if you've committed a very similar act in special circumstances, that can be brought up in this case. But normally, that wouldn't even come into it. Wait, hang on. So you're not allowed to bring in the perpetrator's previous history? No. But you're allowed to bring in the sexual history of one of the victims? Yeah. That's just so backwards. I know. That's so backwards and not fair. Do you know the statistics or the prevalence of sexual assaults? I think overall it's estimated that one in four women will experience sexual assault and about one in 11 men or one in nine, depending on where you look. But those figures are drawn from pre-2004. And 2004 is when the definition of rape changed. Previously it was only vaginal penetration with a penis, whereas now we've extended it to a penile penetration of any orifice 
And if we were in America, we could use penetration with any object, but we haven't quite got there yet in terms of rape. Is there a particular demographic that is more likely to be attacked? It's definitely young women, sort of 13 to 24. Traditionally, black women have been more likely to be attacked within the court system. They're the least likely to end up with getting a guilty verdict. So actually, if you're a clever perpetrator, you target somebody that nobody's going to believe. Students are heavily targeted. You've got 19 times more likelihood of being raped if you're in a wheelchair. 19 times? Yeah, well, imagine you can't run away so quickly. Going off on a bit of a tangent, but Jimmy Savile's victims tended to be girls in hospitals that were like paralysed from the waist down or maybe weren't tended to be but like a high number of them were in that hospital. Because it was spinal injuries and I in the 1980s I did take a group of disabled young people to go and spend the day with him on a Saturday. Oh god. How do you feel about that now? I mean luckily I was there the whole time but even then you're thinking what were we all doing? It was seen as a privilege that our group of young people were chosen to go. You said that the the whole system was set up to... Because the idea is that the, the person who's accused has got more to lose. That's why the whole yeah. system's set up by discrediting the victim. But everything you've said so far is all the evidence about how it's really traumatic for the victim. Why isn't the, the stats and this research enough to change the system? Well, I don't know. This is it. We've done masses of things to change things. The introduction of the SARCs, the Youth and Criminal Evidence Act, which brought in the Rape Shield Laws, the introduction of the Independent Sexual Assault Advisors, the inter- introduction of um, intermediaries, in child sexual abuse cases, recognising that rape in marriage was illegal, recognising male victims of rape. That should have helped as well. But in fact, all we've done is slightly more numbers of people go to the police now and report, but far fewer than in the 1970s get a conviction. In 1977, Liz Kelly's work suggests that about 32% of people who reported to the police ended up with a conviction and say, now we've gone down to this 5 to 6%. Is this not just thoroughly discouraging a field to work in? It is. My son, bless him for my sins. You can imagine our conversations around the dinner table with my girls and my son. But we desperately want to set up a group of academics and practitioners and survivors themselves to actually say, look, what could a different form of justice look like? We can keep tweaking this system. But, but it each, sounds broken. It's broken. It's not working. Do you know how many sexual attacks go unreported? Oh, hundreds of thousands. So what's this based off? Because I know from from the research and from the yeah. studies that I've done that so many of it goes unreported. But I'm always dumbstruck when people say, yeah, but how do you know it's unreported? Oh, from the victim surveys. What's the British Crime Survey, which is now the Crime Survey for England and Wales? In recent years, that's included sexual assault. We've also got national victim surveys that happen across a number of countries. I think it was about 26 countries that they're done. And so they, they actually ask questions about whether or not people have experienced unwanted sex, what type of it was. There's the sexual experiences survey work that's been done where you ask people in term, behavioural terms whether or not they've ever experienced a rape or sexual assault. Now, there's a whole group of people out there who actually have experienced sexual assaults, in fact, have experienced rape, but they don't label it as such. So they'll say, yes, 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 I was forced to have unwanted penetrative sex by being forced and beaten, but no, they don't call it rape. The men particularly don't want to call it... A, they might say it was a physical attack, but they want to leave the sexual element out of it. But women do the same. It's only about 15% of women, apparently, that have been raped that will actually label it as rape. They'll call it miscommunication. And there's a lot of self-blame, which is part of the rape myths. You know, it was my own fault, I didn't communicate enough. 
Yeah, it's always the victim's responsibility. Yeah. I remember doing workshops with students on campus around consent and afterwards people coming up and realising that after having talked about what consent yeah. is... Realising they hadn't given consent. Can I ask what's the difference between a victim and a survivor? It's just terminology. It's hard because there's no one acceptable term. In a way, there's a particular point in time where I still use victims when I'm talking about re-victimisation because I find it quite hard to talk in terms of survivors when they're still in a cycle of being sexually assaulted again and again. You want to fight for them being labelled as victims so that they actually get some recognition that they're not just a witness. And I remember somebody saying to me once that they'd gone to court and she was only 16 at the time and they kept referring to her in court as a witness and she said, I kept shouting out, I wasn't a witness, I was the victim. And because they said they were going to do her for contempt of court if she didn't keep quiet. And she said, but I couldn't understand, why wasn't I being called a victim? Many people sort of say when their transition was to at what point they became a survivor and no longer a victim. But we don't want to be sort of forcing people to think about being a survivor because then there's the thing of, well, if I'm not surviving, then I've got to feel guilty for that. I remember interviewing one gentleman who said to me, I'm not a victim and I'm not a survivor, I'm just somebody that exists. And so I sometimes talk about moving on to thrive. You're not just surviving, but actually some people go on to thrive. I'm involved in restorative justice and uh, the idea that they keep wanting to bring out the survivor that went through RJ and had an amazing experience. At what point are you going to allow her to thrive without this identity? Could you explain what is restorative justice? It should be, as far as I'm concerned, something that's initiated by the victim. Restorative justice allows for a dialogue between the victim and the perpetrator. One of the things in moving forward away from the victimisation experience is often about making sense of what happened, particularly when you've been very scared. There's blanks in what you remember. And the only other person that's going to know what happened, unfortunately, is the perpetrator. Where it's been historic child sexual abuse might just want the opportunity to stand up in front of the perpetrator traitor and say do you know what you might have stolen x number of years from me when i was young but i'm still here and you're not taking my future others might go for what's called a shuttle service where they can pass a letter to the offender and receive a letter back that they're supported in writing particularly with the offender say your offender was never found you could do work to prepare you so you'd have questions you'd want to ask of offenders who'd committed a similar act and so you could then meet with offenders who maybe had gone through a treatment programme who were doing victim empathy work. And it seems to be incredibly powerful, both for the victim and for the offenders. And actually, I think the offenders are much more able to hear a different victim story about the impact on them than they are their own victim. I wanted to ask, do the perpetrators feel remorseful? Not always, no. I think there was some study, that if you just ask rapists, I think it's something like 1% said yes. So at the time of recording this week, the world saw Donald Trump be elected as President of the United States. So he is arguably one of the most powerful people in the world. But he has multiple sexual assault accusations against him. What message is this sending? What scares me, it's not him necessarily. It's the fact that despite all this out in the public, that the number of people that have voted for him, because it just means that... Those allegations against him count for nothing. Nobody cares. One of the things that I'm worried about is just that the amount of people who see that it's okay to like rape and sexually assault people, because uh, you'll get away with it. You can yeah. still be president of the United States. Yes, it. Yeah. It just sends a message of you are untouchable. We see it again also with um, Chad Evans, who was able to continue his football career whilst the victim has had to change her name several times. I think she might be moving country. Here's my question. Should sexual assault offences, like if you've been a perpetrator, affect your career and public life? If you're convicted, it does. 
but only if you're convicted. I think the issue is about keeping the anonymity of both the victim and the offender. Particularly these high-profile cases, it's just caused chaos. We automatically don't want to believe victims, and we certainly don't want to believe a victim when it's a highly charismatic, young, good-looking person that has got a wonderful career ahead of them. Unfortunately, we just don't want to believe that. As an ally, say someone that we know has been sexually assaulted, what is the right thing to do? Knowing what you know in the sense that when you try to be an ally, you now regret it. Yeah. What should What should we do? It's allowing people to sort of say what they want to in their own time, believing what they say, making them feel empowered, letting them make choices. Don't say you must go to the police. Let somebody make up their own mind whether or not that's the right thing to do. We've got what's called like a, a three-week window of sympathy, unfortunately. We're very good at tolerating somebody else's misery for about three weeks. We become sort of a bit more impatient. But the reality is, is in order to make sense of something, you need to keep telling and retelling your story and hearing yourself saying it and hearing different responses to be able to move forward. So I think it is just allowing somebody to take it in their own time, not, not judging them for what's going on. What work are you doing now? I'm finishing writing my book on sexual revictimisation that brings together a whole number of the studies that I've done over the years. I'm finishing and writing up a study that we did looking at young men's understanding of consent because I think there's some young men out there that are not rapists but unfortunately they're not getting consent, they're just waiting to see if they can get where they're going. And so the young men that took part in the focus groups of that just said, why aren't we doing this in schools? Yes, my ultimate aim really, along with my daughter Angel, is we desperately want to write material for anybody that's got an intervention programme going. It'll be like a bolt-on that looks at preventing the re-victimisation of survivors. And one I'm trying to get loads of money for at the moment is I want to study the impact of victims of sexual violence not progressing through the criminal justice system. And we've had a number of women over the past few years um, that have committed suicide as they go through the court cases or at the conclusion when they've been given not guilty verdicts. That was Nadia Wager talking about her research and work alongside the criminal justice system and the Crown Prosecution Service. We need more people like her working with victims and survivors to reform the system. On to our next guest. My name's Duncan. I'm the wrong side of 30. I identify as a gay male and I live in Manchester with my husband. Thank you very much for introducing yourself. Thank no you problem. so much for coming on this podcast this month to talk to us about a really important topic of consent. Could you maybe start by explaining why you started Survivors Manchester? So it all starts off with this idea that I had about training to be a therapist. And as a therapist, when you're training, you have to go for therapy yourself and you end up having clinical supervision. And it was whilst I was in clinical supervision with my supervisor talking about a young man that I was working with in therapy who'd been sexually assaulted. It started, I suppose, stirring up memories and ended with me having to admit that I was a child abuse survivor and that I'd been sexually assaulted on a number of occasions. And facing the reality of that, go looking for support in Manchester and find that there is none. And as a proud Mancunian, I thought this is ridiculous. You know, Manchester's meant to be this metropolitan hub of innovation. Why haven't we got support for men and those that identify as male? And I decided to start something myself. So what does Survivors Manchester offer? So we provide a range of services to anybody that identifies as male. And it's really important that I say that because for many years, people have said, oh, you only work with men. 
and we don't. We work with people who identify as male. And the support ranges from telephone support through to website, email support, counselling and psychotherapy. We have peer support activities. We've had a walking group. We've currently just started our very first art psychotherapy group. And we also have the very first ever male-specific ISVA, which is an independent sexual violence advisor. He supports people who want to speak to the police or who are part of an investigation as a victim. We have been looking and talking recently about the trans community and what do we do to best meet trans community needs. We've been doing quite a lot of work in prisons, so developing services for people who have been sexually assaulted in prison or often people who are child abuse survivors that find themselves within the criminal justice system. We've been looking at people who have been through the care system and, and what do we do for those. We're doing some work with Edge Hill University around sport prior to the more recent revelations from football. Right, so I think it's fair to say that me and Sid are sitting here absolutely blown away by the breadth of services that you offer. It's amazing. And we really want to get into the nitty gritty of Survivors Manchester UK, but I also want to kind of tap into your story behind this. If you're comfortable talking about it, can you maybe explain a little bit about what happened to you? Sure. So I was abused by a member of the community, by so somebody who was known and I suppose in a way a very typical groom story. So in some way that individual identified some kind of need within me, which was probably something around friendship. So it started when I was 11 and I wouldn't say that at 11 I knew that I was gay, but at 11 I knew I was different. And I think this person really embraced that difference and then used it against me and sexually abused me from 11 to about, I used to say about 16, but then quite recently. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
recently when I came across a photograph of me at the stable where I used to be abused and there was a date on the back of the photograph and it put me at just after my 17th birthday so it's a very new thing for me to start saying it happened from 11 to 17. You know it started off with touching and fooling around and as I got older the abuse got older it got more graphic it got a bit more violent and I suppose what that does is it leaves an individual with a very confused sense of themselves. Fast forward then to my 20-year-old era where I found myself in situations, being in nightclubs, going back to people's houses. I found myself in a couple of situations where I was sexually assaulted, I, I was raped. And I suppose people think about rape as being this thing that happens in a specific kind of way. But actually, rape's about consent. It's about somebody that penetrates somebody else without their consent. I've had sort of face up to the fact that there's no way that I could have consented. There was no way that I wanted to do that. But as a boy, I sort of learned how to just shut down. That was the way that I'd survived. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. So this person, it was a known member in the community. Yeah. How were they known to you? They were just known to everybody. They were just a normal, average member of the community. Right, so they, they, did, they didn't know, look like no... a perpetrator. <laughs> I talk about this a lot when I'm training. If a person wants to commit some kind of offence and get away with it, then in some way they need to normalise everything. Yeah, and I think that's uh, quite important to echo. The whole thing when you look at the Brock Turner case... It's like, oh, he doesn't look like a rapist. He doesn't look like a perpetrator. And it's like, well, no, you don't have to be an absolute monster to look like someone who's going to commit an awful crime. There's no such thing as what does a rapist look like. The only thing that we can say at this moment in this country, in the United Kingdom, is that a rapist looks like a man because only men can commit the act of rape according to statutory law. Wow, Mm. that's really interesting. Is that based on the fact that men have penises? So the law states, the Sexual Offences Act 2003, Section A, rape occurs when person A inserts his penis into the anus, vagina or mouth of person B, when person B doesn't consent and person A knows there's no consent. That's literally the statutory law. That's how the police look at rape because that's what's in statute. So if I say to you, I was sexually abused, that could mean anything. If I say to you I was raped, I am defining a specific act. So that doesn't take into consideration maybe objects penetrating someone? Oh, wow, Okay. it wouldn't be classed as rape. It would be classed as probably something like assault by penetration. So what's really important to look at in that is rape can only be committed by a man because it says person A inserts his penis, therefore person A has got to be male, into the anus, vagina or mouth of person B. Notice how person B isn't gendered or sexed. Mm. So therefore, anyone can be raped. The other interesting bit is that men or males can only have been victims of rape since 1995 when the law changed. Prior to that, there was no such thing in law as the rape of males. Do these definitions, these legal definitions to be precise, get in the way of men who are accessing the support services that you offer? I think yes and no. We have rape as society has defined it as this thing that happens to women. 
or to females. We don't necessarily see it as this thing that happens to males. Maybe that's something about the fact that it's only really a 21-year-old crime, which is hugely embryonic. So I think society's not got its head around it because we haven't really looked at it. We haven't caught up with statistics. So because we're not putting the information out there in the world, people don't necessarily understand it. So in a way, yes, it does. I think rape has become such a toxic word. So I've had many times guys come in and talking about where they've been forced and coerced by their female partner into sex. He's been forced to be an object that satisfies her. And he will talk about the fact that as far as he's concerned, he was raped. We just go along with that because it's really important to bear witness to the individual's experience. I suppose also it's difficult, I think, for men because to have sex you need to be physically erected and that suggests that you... Arousal. Right, that you're aroused by the situation. And then it's that whole kind of thing that if you've had sex you're really lucky, you're a lad, but obviously you really enjoyed it. And then that creates like a culture of secrecy, people not reporting things. But you just said something really important then. You said he needs to be physically aroused. And that's true because an erection is a physical arousal and it's a physiological reaction to stimulation. So when I'm talking to young men, for instance, we'll often do it you know, with a bit of a joke and because, you know, humour's a great way of cutting through discomfort. And we'll talk about the fact that for lots of lads, they'll often wake up first thing in the morning with a hard on. It doesn't necessarily mean that they've been thinking about sex and it certainly doesn't mean that they suddenly have become sexually aroused by their bed. It just means that part of their body has been stimulated. Can I ask what it's like to support people through realising that they have been assaulted or they may have been raped and also to kind of realise that for yourself also, particularly when you had, I suppose, forgotten? Absolutely incredible. So first of all, what was really important to me was to go and get the support for myself. I think there's something interesting about the idea of forgotten because I used to say that, you know, the reality is we didn't forget. We just re-narrated it. We rewrote it. The brain shut down. The brain and the mind is this incredible thing that just protects us from the things that we're unable to process. And for me, being part of somebody else's life is just mind-blowing. I am the luckiest person on this planet. Every single day, I find myself in situations where I am talking to people who identify as male, who have never said a particular thing talking to them and then suddenly they just find themselves with some kind of people said courage people said strength I just think there's something about identification I stand there as transparent as I can possibly be and in some way that promotes something about true transparency and somebody decides that they want to take a step forward and connect and they tell me things they've never told anybody. I just feel so privileged. I just mean like that feeling that I get in my stomach that just makes me kind of just swell with pride for the person but also the honour that they've chosen me say this to it's just it's it's absolutely incredible so what i'm quite interested to know is the reason why i understand that it's difficult for men and boys and people that identify as men to come forward is because of the stereotype of you know men being kind of lads and men not being in touch with their emotions and things like that and then to combine that we've also got this stereotype of being you know a bit of a northern lad from manchester that's even more susceptible to this stereotype how does that interact it's a really interesting time that we're having this discussion 
question because a couple of weeks ago, a number of ex-footballers stood up and disclosed that they'd been sexually abused, they'd been raped, they'd been sexually exploited uh, at various times in their childhood and early to late teenage years. And I think it's completely turned the world upside down because we're dealing with masculinity or maleness and something about bravado and something about power and control and the alpha male. And I think the higher you go up the country, the stereotypes about men being real men gets harder and harder and harder till up in Scotland, where they're always seen as being some of the hardest men. I think there's something really important about what's happening within the whole setting of football. We've seen a significant increase in men coming forward. Not necessarily men that have been sexually abused or raped whilst within sport, but men just stepping forward because in a way, the people that we see as the proper lads, the footballers, they're in some way revealing something about their vulnerability. And vulnerability and masculinity are two ideas that have never really gone together and we're really going to start having to redefine what it means about maleness. Yeah, I think we're on the verge of quite an interesting shift in people's consciousness. I think feminism has a huge part to play in that. I think women have a huge part to play in that. I think there's something fascinating about crimes against women. So we see sexual violence as being a gendered crime and that's always really bugged me because when we begin to start labelling something one thing, so for instance, rape, domestic violence, sexual assault, violence against women and girls, that's the strategy and the agenda that we have in this country. As a man, irrelevant. My sexuality in this is irrelevant. I'm a man. I have a penis. I do not feel comfortable about the fact that what happened to me is classed as a violence against women. I have the right to be seen. And it's not an either or. We don't have to have strategies and work that's about violence against women and girls or violence against men and boys. This isn't an or conversation. This is an and conversation. I think that's interesting. When I was doing some research, I found that people tend to associate sexual violence and sexual assault as a gendered crime, that it happens to women the majority of the time. And then I found this research that suggested that it's actually more of a 50-50 split, that, you know, men just don't report it as often and how traumatic that is, the fact that we are leaving men out of the conversation. And I think that's why it was so important to us to have that kind of voice on the podcast, because it's a platform for people that mainstream media ignores. Absolutely. But the moment we try and bring the issue around domestic violence, sexual violence against boys and men. Sometimes I get this feeling that lots of people want to pat me on the head and say, yeah, 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 of course, Duncan, yeah, yeah, we know that. However, we must never forget this happens to more women. And I'm absolutely not saying that it doesn't. But how do we know that it does? We can only know what we know. We can't know what we don't know. And until we get some kind of parity in reporting, how are we ever really going to know what's happening? When you begin to start having these conversations, people become threatened when I start saying of course but we also need to think about boys and men what I'm saying is we need to forget women and girls and that's never the option forgetting women and girls is not an option it's a very good point speaking of LGBTs we're really pleased to hear that your Survivors Manchester is trans inclusive and something that we've come across is the idea that men when they are sexually assaulted or raped by other men begin to question their own sexuality from the people that you work with and maybe even coming to terms with your own sexual orientation 
what kind of insight do you have? I think that probably is something that, top of my head, I'd probably say about 95% of men who come through our door in some way are struggling with. We have about 25% of people who come through our door would identify as gay or bisexual. The rest are people who would identify as heterosexual. And four or 5% of individuals who would identify as trans. And sexuality is a huge thing. Sexual orientation is mixed up within that sexuality. But when you've had your sexuality, who you have sex with, how you have sex, when that's been fractured because somebody has taken control of that against your will, then it just totally makes perfect sense that you would have questions around that. The thing that we don't do in the field of sexual violence very well is we don't deal with trans people. I never forget it. There was a young trans male that we was working with and he'd just been bounced from pillar to post because he just didn't fit into a particular box and equally by doing some work with another organization and we had a trans female and she was referred to our service which was a male only group and I said I'm really sorry but you can't come in and she said thank you so much and it's because I seem to have just been the first person that saw her as female. I think the women's movement has got a lot of work to do on that and lead the way in that and I think some of the men's health movement needs to understand a lot more about that issue as well. So there's work for us all? Absolutely. We've got to do it together. We don't do it at the trans community. We do it with. All of the high profile cases that have happened, I mean Jimmy Savile and the child sex abuse claims and then what you're talking about recently in football, what kind of effect has this had on your work? We've seen year on year a huge increase in people coming forward, which is brilliant. I often get calls from reporters saying, just seen some data that says more people are being sexually assaulted or raped in Manchester. And I think, wow, you certainly do not know how to read data because what they've looked at is maybe the crime reporting data. So they've looked at the data and it says more people have reported a crime. That doesn't mean that more people are being raped. It means that more people are reporting. That's got to be a good thing because it means that less people are sat in silence suffering. Every time that you get these big high-profile cases, we get a whole load of myth and legend. Some of it gets smashed, some of it gets cemented but what we definitely get is people being triggered to reach out for support. So you experienced sexual assault between the ages of 11 and 17. Did you report it or did you feel like you wanted to maybe report it historically or what was the thought process there? I didn't realise it until I was in my late 20s, early 30s and at that point I suppose in a way the best description is I kind of had a breakdown. I, I shut down from the world and went into some kind of huge big reflection because what I suppose what I was saying to myself is a whole load of my history that I thought had happened in one way now I had to face the reality of it was wrong it hadn't happened that way and the last thing I wanted at that moment was anybody discovering anything about myself that I didn't know myself so I decided I came up with this plan 
that I wasn't going to talk to the police about it. I was going to go into therapy and I was going to deal with everything that came up and I was going to find out the truth for myself. And then once I'd done that, then I'd go and speak to the police. By that point, a couple of years later, Survivors Manchester had started. I was training police officers in dealing with male rape victims. I was using my story and talking about what I'd been through on TV and radio in print, in magazines. And I'd kind of shot myself in the foot with the fact that I'd spoken about it so publicly that should the person still have been alive, and should it have gone to court, then there was a whole host of things that could have been said about, because I was working in this field, that maybe the things I was saying weren't necessarily true to me. And I'd spoken very openly about the fact that I had sort of re-narrated the story. So I would have been handing the defence a whole load of ideas around how to create doubt to my story. Did you see the perpetrator after you came to these realisations? No, he's dead by then. Wow. Do you feel like you've got closure at all from the experience? Oh, God, hugely, yeah. I'm often asked about, Duncan, do you not think it's hypocritical that you never reported to the police and then you support people to report? Which I just think is a ridiculous question because, first of all, where's the hypocrisy in it? I don't want people to report to the police just because I did. And I don't want people to report to the police just because I didn't. I want them to do it because they want to do it. Reporting to the police isn't the holy grail. What's really important is that people get their own life back, that people have a choice and heal in whatever way it is that they heal. Reporting isn't for everybody. And I think there's something really important about recognising that closure for lots of people doesn't rest on a conviction. It rests within themselves. When I realised what had gone on for me and I realised I could talk about it and I realised that he was no longer controlling my life, that's closure. I think that's interesting to say that the importance of closure is for it to be a healing process. And I I think we've heard time and time again that the judicial system and the prosecution service isn't geared to be a healing process for victims who end up reporting it. Absolutely. So I think it's important to not put the onus on victims to report things because sometimes that isn't actually the best thing to do. Why don't we put the onus on the perpetrators recognising what they've done? Absolutely. I just want to quickly talk about how you do some amazing work with police officers and police officers dealing with male sexual assault victims. What sort of stuff do you do with them? What kind of stigmas and taboos are you smashing with these police officers? So we we look at real cases. I talk a lot about a particular time that I remember being raped, so I go into great detail about it. We unpick cases We come up with some myths and stereotypes. So, for instance, male rape only happens in prisons. You're more at risk of rape from strangers. Men don't suffer as bad as women because men don't risk becoming pregnant. We look at all of these myths and stereotypes and we kind of break them down. We look at where they come from. We look at some data. So we look at stuff like since the Andrew Richards case, which was in 94 and 95, which is when the law changed around the rape of males. And we look at the data that shows kind of over a decade, it was like a 657% increase. And it's still one of the biggest increases of a particular crime in a decade, still to this day. We then look at things around kind of like physiological reactions. So we look at how for many men, men will often get erections, men can you know, even ejaculate whilst they're being raped or whilst they're being 
sexually assaulted and how, you know, that's very confusing for lots of men, how that can further create silence. And we talk about the biology of it and we talk about, you know, what's really going on there. And, you know, in, in fact, that's sort of no different than women. There's lots of stuff that's been written about around women feeling a physiological pleasure and even feeling in some kind of way ejaculating off because when they're being penetrated, even though it's violent and, and sometimes it's not violent, but the clitoris is being stimulated. So we all pick all of that kind of stuff. It's just about facilitating a space where people can ask really awkward questions and feel awkward. Thank you for sharing that because I remember when I read an article about a survivor, she was telling her story and she mentioned that she had in fact orgasmed when she had been raped and that it took her a long, long time to reclaim her orgasm because it was involuntary. Absolutely. An orgasm is a physiological reaction. Sneezing is a physiological reaction. What we don't talk about is sex after rape, sex after sexual abuse. How does somebody reclaim sex? How does someone reclaim their sexuality? Something I've really struggled with over the years. Was I raped and sexually assaulted because I was gay? Or am I gay because I was raped and sexually assaulted? Did you find your answer for that one? I'm not too sure I have, but I can tell you that the best thing that happened is I stopped asking the question because actually it becomes irrelevant. It doesn't matter to me anymore. I don't mean it becomes irrelevant to everybody. It becomes irrelevant to me. It doesn't matter which way round it was. What's just really important to me more than anything now is this skin that I sit in is way more comfortable than it ever used to be. I think that's such an interesting point about reclaiming your like your sexuality and your sex life after being sexually assaulted or raped. I'd never thought about that. I just wanted to quickly ask, what do you say, what would you, advice would you have to young boys or to men or people who identify as men that are going through the same thing as you went through? What advice do you have for them? Just remember that if you want to speak out, if you want to find out about yourself, about getting help, there genuinely are people out there that can help you. It doesn't mean that you have to go and see somebody. It can be an email. It can be a Facebook message. It can be a telephone call. The National Mail Survivor Helpline 0808 800 5005 is anonymous. Survivors Manchester's website has got a whole host of information on there. Just my advice is that if you want help, you can get help. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Duncan, and giving up your evening to chat to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great. Oh, thank you so much. Our final question is always if there's anything that you'd like to plug, like maybe how people can get in touch with Survivors Manchester or donate or anything like that. How can people find you? So you can get in touch with us if you go on the website, which is www.survivorsmanchester.org.uk. Or if you want to get some help, you want to reach out, then email support at survivorsmanchester.org.uk or if you're a male and you're looking for some advice and you want to pick up the phone you can ring 0808 800 5005 Thank you so much, Duncan. I honestly, we honestly can't tell you how appreciative we are that you've given up your time and been so open and honest and trusting with us with this information. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. Thanks for doing what you do and adding your part 
into the mix because it's really important that we keep this issue alive. That was Duncan talking to us about Survivors Manchester, masculinity and his experience as a survivor and a therapist. We especially liked that his work is trans inclusive. My name is Swana and my pronouns are she and her. I started a campaign around consent, raising awareness in students' unions around the issues and sort of misconceptions. First it started out having like stickers, but then I worked with people from Sex Expression and other student officers to put together a workshop plan so they could talk to other students about it. Amazing. As part of your work as NUS Women's Officer, it seems that you did quite a lot of work with consent. Can you maybe define for us a little what consent actually is? Well, I define consent as a choice um, which you have the freedom and capacity to make. Why is consent such an important topic to focus on at university? You sort of hear lots of um, stories about people experiencing sexual violence and sexual harassment at university. Loads of people still somehow think that they're entitled to invade people's spaces and bodies and privacy. So for me, consent is really important because I feel like there needs to be more conversations about where people's boundaries are and like how to respect them. I don't have to deal with things like being sexually harassed or catcalled while going to class and stuff. So do you think that this is something that should be taught from uh, the beginning, so in primary school or secondary school? I think this particular workshop is better suited to university and like the student age people because it talks about things that we've already probably experienced, things like slut shaming and stuff. Young children who are expected to hug and kiss family members or have random strangers approach them and they're not knowing how to set their own boundaries. So I think the conversation's a little bit different. I just want to bring up some of the things that the workshop that you designed covers. The idea that you could start getting frisky with someone and then like maybe actually not want to go all the way. Do you want to elaborate on that a little, like other misconceptions that you tackle? While some people might think it's quite standard to be able to say, no, I don't want to do this anymore, can we stop? There are black people that make comments during workshops like, well, once we've got started, I can't really stop. People that do have sort of harmful ideas and maybe not being able to discuss them out loud and be challenged um, over those ideas. And I think part of that comes from misconceptions about what consent is. I've seen so many campaigns on zero tolerance, which was great, but it was sort of dealing with the aftermath of the issue. I didn't think much was being done in terms of um, prevention work. What are you most proud of of achieving with this campaign? Um, I think how widespread it's become and lots of universities are bringing consent workshops, maybe not the exact same ones, but consent workshops in as part of their inductions. When we first started off, very few institutions were doing this and it seemed like a really silly thing that people didn't think would catch on. But I think the increase of like students getting involved and universities getting involved and joining up has been something I'm quite proud of. I think it's quite interesting what you said where originally people were quite sceptical of whether it was needed because I remember I did the I Heart Consent Workshop at university and I remember there was a lot of people being like, why do we need a consent workshop? And then when you actually get into the thick of it, it's not a given. And some of the scenarios that um, you come up with and that you challenge people on gets you really thinking, you know? So things like, uh, okay, so you've slept with them before. Does that mean that you consent to every time you sleep with them? Things like that and like, oh, someone's drunk, but they said yes. Is that really consensual? And I found it really interesting being given this consent workshop when I was 19 or 20 and legally I'd been sexually active for at least three years by that point. And only then, at the age of 19, was I being taught what consent was. 
I feel like we should do a full disclaimer in that Susuana was NUS women's officer and started rolling out this um, workshop. I started running the workshop at university with sports clubs and societies. I actually ended up running the workshop with Elena. Now, this is before Elena and I knew each other, but I remember doing it with you and I remember how... So just to give a bit of perspective, there was so much resistance to running the workshop in the first place. And once I got the entire of men's and women's rugby's trained up, everyone wanted in. By the end of that one hour, they all agreed that consent was something important that they should actually think about asking for. Is it okay to ask why is consent so important for you to work on? I think working on it for like the past few years has been like a therapeutic thing for me because I experienced sexual violence quite young and during my time as a student and I wanted a way to process it in a way I can like talk to other people about the issues. I think feminist spaces and feminist society like allowed me to have little bubbles where I can talk about things like rape culture and how things made me feel. Those conversations were ones like other people should have been having too. I saw how it impacted other people who had experienced sexual violence or had friends who experienced sexual violence and didn't really know how to talk about the issue or influence their friends to have like better ideas around consent. So on the topic of that, what are some rape myths that you tackle in the I Heart Consent workshops? One of the big ones are around things that women wear. It can be an interesting one. It's very rare someone who's brave enough to like actually step home and be like, well, if she's wearing this, she, she obviously wants some attention or like, but people do. One of the things that worked well in the workshops was the one about false allegations. There was mm. a huge fear that women just made up being sexually assaulted. The number of false allegations was under 1%. Wow. Were there any um, criticisms of the campaign, Sitswana? We had two main ones. One, how it was, like, advertised. On one side, people say, oh, like, it's too aggressive and, like, anti-men. And, like, and the other side was like, oh, it's too fluffy and, like, it doesn't get to the point. Well, you can't please everyone. The majority of freshers actually reacted well to that. Like, people wear it on T-shirts and, like, their bags like, to uni. And, like, especially where I work now at Sussex University, it's, like, a very common thing to see a member of staff or, like, a student. But also, when we did the first round of workshops, it had, like, a very small bit on, like, LGBT identities. When we improved it the second round, we expanded that. That allowed people to actually to introduce people to, like, identities that they weren't really taught about especially a lot of people don't really know the difference between being celibate being abstinent and being asexual since that we've encouraged people to like make different briefings on lgt identities i made one on ace identities with my friend jasper that's asexuality right yes would you be able to briefly um define asexuality so an asexual person is somebody that feels no or little sexual attraction to people but they can feel some romantic attraction or feel attracted to them in like other ways an asexual person like can have sex but it's just like they don't have the same sort of connection that a lot of people assume is normal of the human race to like have between people it's a big spectrum something i'm aware of is that the whole workshop you had to define consent and one of the things that this threw up was whether consent needed to always be enthusiastic yeah would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the debate because that kind of taps into asexuality a little bit and sex work am i right yeah so when we started doing workshops there was lots of stuff around sex positivity in universities which is great there was sort of rhetoric about enthusiastic consent all the time which worked in the context if you were like a sexual person who could have normative relationships sexual relationships and enjoyed sex and stuff like that but it was inclusive of people who were asexual and like maybe had sex but 
wasn't that enthusiastic about it. It's something like they just agreed to have because they don't mind or like they generally want to make their partner happy, but they can still actively consent without being enthusiastic about the situation. And also sex workers who consent to sex and not enthusiastic about doing it. They just need to do the job and get the money and like move on. Also people who have certain health conditions where enthusiasm isn't part of their like spectrum in terms of feeling and like emotional reactions um people who are trying for a baby who are having like a difficult time so there's like a lot of people that consent to sex who aren't like massively enthusiastic about it but it doesn't invalidate their right to consent and that was why your definition earlier was about the choice and the freedom to choose Excellent. Interesting, because when you think about consent, you think that, oh, you know, it's got to be enthusiastic. And you've just listed so many examples. I just totally would never think of, you know, like someone trying for a baby. Like, that's fascinating. I never thought about that. Like, some people turn it on its head, so people say it should be enthusiastically sought, which makes more sense as in, like, making an effort to actually go and ask one of the issues when it comes to things happening at university is that generally the people running the unions are students and they know people. It's like, oh, we're all about I heart consent. We're all about promoting this. But then as soon as it's one of our own or someone we know, the rules kind of get twisted a little bit. And I feel like this is something that's maybe quite rife in university simply because of the setting. Is this something that you've experienced or come across at all? I feel like... When students' union are creating, like, zero-tolerance policies and zero-tolerance campaigns, they sometimes don't think it through massively because they want to get something out there and look good. Um, Therefore, they miss, like, big gaping holes within their policies and procedures because students should know what's the difference between the procedure if they're, like, um, accusing another student or if they're accusing someone who's a SAB, because if the person's a SAB, they should have a policy around staff misconduct, which should be transparent. There should be stuff on, like, staff to staff and university staff to students. But a lot of these policies stop short as, as we don't tolerate sexual violence, full stop, which is something that a lot of students' unions have had just because the speed that they want a campaign to like happen i feel like if more took their time and like really looked at their procedures and policies and how they implement them and communicate them there'd be a stronger system that people could trust that takes time to make but it's important that it's done well there should be people in place that are neutral that you can trust and that are trained a good policy is one that's very clear about what people define as sexual harassment or discrimination whatever the policy um, covers but also clear about who you can report to where that information goes how long you're supposed to wait what the process is and very clear outlines but also what the potential outcomes could be and making sure the person reporting is very central to like what happens to the other person making sure that they feel comfortable about the outcome I feel like people forget or don't take in account that bullying can happen because somebody's come forward. But I think if that's emphasised a bit more, people will be more aware of it and hopefully stop doing it as much. Is there anything that you're working on that you would like to plug? If people want to find out more about Consent Campaign and what we do and like how to get resources or want me to visit their students' union or university, um, they can 
email iheartconsent at gmail.com or go to iheartconsent.com or look up iheartconsent on Twitter, which recently got over a thousand followers. Well done, uh, you. Well done. And iheartconsent on Facebook. Honestly, anyone listening, totally do it. It's such a worthwhile workshop. I loved it. People can follow me on Twitter at Suswana, that's S-U-S-U-A-N-A underscore X-X. Lots of like intersectional feminist chat. Thank you so much, Suswana. Thank you so much for being so patient, explaining things to us and just taking the time to do this. It's been amazing. You're great. Mm-hmm. A huge thanks to Suswana there for talking to us about her I Heart Consent campaign that we honestly couldn't recommend more. I really liked how she mentioned that the definition of consent has to evolve to consider enthusiasm. So that was episode seven, Consent, the last one of 2016. Now, 2016, you were pretty shit, apart from this excellent podcast series. As ever, if you want to get in contact, suggest a topic or be a guest, you can find us on Kicking the Kairiarchy on Facebook, Kick Kairiarchy on Twitter, or email us kickingthekairiarchy at gmail.com. Bring on 2017. Yeah. Whoop. Hoot. Party. Cunt. (laughs) I like that it says party cunt. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.